Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. And up next, a discussion about why runners need to do more neuromuscular training. After that, World of Running updates about more Diamond League action, USA 20K champs, and big-time mountain racing. Welcome back to the show, and for many of you, welcome back from a holiday weekend Mm -hmm. or something of that nature. Hopefully you got a break from your labor. Well, that was the intent of the original formulation of that holiday, but that isn't always the way we spend it, depending on how you vacation. Sometimes you need a vacation from your vacation. Hmm. But whether you are doing that or something else, chances are you're wondering things about running, and you should share those wonderings with us anytime by going to a to z running.com slash question ask your questions we'll feature answers on the podcast and it came to our attention recently that you can also ask questions via spotify if you are a spotify listener there's an interact element within just built right in to the spotify platform for podcasts did you know that i did not know that well we have sorry if i missed we have missed some occasionally but but as it were uh, we had one recently here that we'd love to feature and respond to briefly. You have one, in fact, Andy, a comment from T. Sizzle. T. Sizzle from Spotify, who has pain in their right knee and can't seem to kick it. Mm. Oh, man, that's a bummer. Knee pain is it's the pits. Well, this may be a comment specifically timely, as it were, because we were talking about knee pain with a different listener's question just recently last week right depending on when you're listening to this yeah yeah Yeah. in episode 204 so we shared some thoughts in that recent episode and knee pain almost always has to do with like your hips stability there and your uh, upper leg strength so it's good to look into those things especially if you are working with a pt maybe asking them some Mm. of the weaknesses that you might have And that knee, I tell you what, it takes the brunt being between your foot, which if your foot placement isn't great or you have foot issues or you have hip issues, the knee is right in between and it can take a lot of force. We may also, T-Sizzle, provide you with uh, some additional considerations within this and next week's episode as well. A Mm two-part, one-two punch on some relevant factors. So stay tuned. Well, you don't have to stay tuned for very long, so let's get on to our discussion about neuromuscular training. As Andy said, talking about neuromuscular training, and what we want to do here is two parts because rather than spend an inordinate amount of time in a single episode on the topic and potentially overstay our welcome in your ears, we're going to talk about the why and a little bit of defining the concept here now. And then next time, so you got to tune in to the next episode, we'll address the how piece of it, which, as you might guess, is the more practical of the two. It's going to tell you things to do and when and how to go about doing them. Uh, But we do want to still give you some practical considerations here as well within the why. And so especially thinking about where you fall within these kind of categorical concepts may be helpful as you're listening to this because that will also then set you up for what you should be listening for next week as well. Mm -hmm. 
we've talked about this, as Zach mentioned, in a variety of capacities so far, but we kind of wanted to develop more of the picture. And we have noticed that all of you like to be in the know, you like to study things, you like the research. And so we want to equip you with the reason why we do this, as Zach said. Reasons, probably. There's probably a few thoughts to consider. Um, So first, let's define some concepts a little bit here. So you you and I are, you and us and we, so we're all on the same page as we talk about something like this because neuromuscular training is a specific concept. Um, If you were to like Google that, you'd find, you know, the abbreviation NT is in reference to specific set of considerations, but there's also more of just a general idea here too. And so as we talk about neuromuscular development for runners, um, we're certainly referring to that brain muscle interaction. Mm -hmm. And there's a a lot of layers involved with that. Um, But I would say that uh, I appreciate how Jay DeSherry basically distills it down in his book, Running Rewired, which is, as you might guess, a big piece of the puzzle that we'll be sharing with you here on this topic. We've talked about that work in the past because it's a good one. Um, Also, there's some other good sources of information here that will fit well as we go. Um, so Jay DeSherry says uh, that's neuromuscular concept. He calls it wiring, uh, brain wiring stuff is essentially about controlled and efficient motion. And so those are the two sides of the coin. Controlled motion is that idea that things move precisely and safely. He actually specifically uses the phrase like safe movement, um, which I find interesting, as opposed to saying healthy, which is the implication there. uh, The idea here is that when the movement is safe, that it's going to result in healthy outcomes. When the movement is unsafe, chances are it will be unhealthy outcomes. The other part then is the efficient side, which is more likely the thing that people talk about when you hear people talking about this concept at all. They'll talk about running economy, running efficiency, some of those things. Um, Efficiency of motion, as Sherry defines it, is more along the lines of things like um, how do we move with the least amount of energy cost and ultimately the, the highest potential performance output. I would like to raise the stakes a little bit. Okay. Because I think a lot of us think, okay, well, running, you know, it's a hobby that I do. And so do I want to put extra effort into neuromuscular work? Well, it's not just about safe movement while running. It's about the movement in your day-to-day life too. And all of this, as you develop it for running, is going to help you with your proprioception in your everyday life. It's going to help you do tasks more safely, as Jada Sherry says, safely in your everyday life. So it's not just about running, but it's also wiring for healthy and safe living. Yeah. Well, that's, that's in fact a point that I don't know exactly how he makes it, but at some point in this particular book, DeSherry writes about how um, just the posture we have when we're sitting and standing are relevant factors in even the considerations around running. And of course we could all, we could all assume that. Yeah. It's probably true that if I sit hunched over at a keyboard all day long, that when I'm running, chances are there's going to be some parallels there Mm -hmm. and they're not good. And a very practical thing as you are putting on your socks or your shoes, being able to stand on one foot without losing your balance. Balance is a 
part of near muscularity and is a part of proprioception. It's a big piece of proprioception. So I think when we discuss this topic, you can bring it into other areas of your life that you can see some benefit when you're working on these things. Yeah. So as we often like to reference, Coach Hodgkinson was on the podcast in the early days. So you can go back. It's like in episode 10 or something, I think. Um, You can go back and and find some great wisdom from some of our earliest guests on the podcast. And Hodgkinson says it like this. uh, We want to be able to run faster without trying harder. Um, And that's the that's what neuromuscular training is all about, essentially, is being able to run faster without trying harder and do so safely and stay healthy. So if that's the case, then assuming that's what we mean when we're talking about these concepts, about this control and efficiency of motion and about the multifaceted outcome of just being able to be healthy and move well and have some performance potential benefits. Um, so why why neuromuscular training? Which we're alluding to that a fair bit there, but we're going to get into it a little bit more here. Beginning with the why not. Mm-hmm. So what stops people from doing this kind of stuff? I think one big thing that stops people is just not knowing what to do. Yeah. Or maybe they research it online and they're like, there's so many things I could do. I feel overwhelmed and I feel stuck with this. Yeah. That, I mean, that that's true. That's true with most of this kind of stuff. Um, how do I know what I should be doing? Because you, you can find what to do with Google easily. Um, but it's too much. It's always over, over information. And so how do I know what to do specifically that's best or that's best for me? That's good. Yeah. That's difficult. Is that pre-run routine still available? Of course the pre-run routine is still available. So a to z slash free. That's still available. We just created a PDF of our pre-run routine. You're not supposed to be going into the how right now, Andy. That's for next week. Well, people want to know what to do right this moment. So I'm just going to put it out there because I feel feel like it's helpful to have a launching point. And some of you have already signed up for that and have gotten that in your inbox. Go back. And that's a great place to start for neuromuscular work. Those pre-run drills and doing the lunge matrix. Potentially. But we're actually going to make the case that even if you do all the right things, you could still achieve no benefits whatsoever. Because if you do the right things in the wrong ways, you got problems. So that's this is supposed <laughs> to help you do them in the right ways. Though, so. Right. But point being, um, you may have, you may say, I do all that kind of stuff and I don't experience the benefits that you've been talking about so far. We'll get to that. So maybe one of your holdups is that Zach discourages you by saying <laughs> this. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay, the next well, one is, is no, feeling silly. I think a lot of people don't do some of the stuff that it takes because they feel silly before a run doing some of the drills and activations that they that might help them with their near muscularity. And then So that's that's the social media fallacy, right? Where the idea of like how others perceive me it changes my behavior. That's crazy. That's like that's like insane that what? I would not do things that I know are good because of how other people might perceive it. Well, I think there's a lot there, Zach. So some, some of us are more I'm not social saying, than others. Right. And uh, I'm not Zach. saying it's not a legitimate challenge for people. You can I'm just feel saying shy at, or nervous when other people are around. Right. But at the logical, <laughs> rational level, and we would probably all agree with that. 
if I knew, if I could tell you right now, I, I do this a lot, don't I? If I could tell you right now that doing X every day for the next two weeks would make you a better runner, period. But you had to do that with a hundred of the people you most care about their opinion watching you, would you do it? And and so that like that's what that this that that's that old question, right? And everyone of course knows you should do it no matter who's watching you, right? Um and yet many of us wouldn't. And you know, bring it to like the race setting. You're at race day and you hesitate to want to do these things when everyone's just kind of around watching everyone else do all the stuff. Well, that shouldn't stop us, but it does. And it's I not just it. for serious runners or what you perceive oh, as serious next, yeah. runners. Yeah, I guess we could move into that right now. Yeah, I think a lot of people think, well, it's only going to be helpful for people who are already really good. Or And that's not true. Or on the other side of that same coin, we feel like um, I, I'm not taking myself that seriously right now the thing i'm doing is not that important to me the thing i'm doing is not that serious so why would i do like the serious running thing which of course again it's not a question of whether or not the thing is important to you like the performance goal we mentioned is a piece of the puzzle but there's a lot more to this and also safe and efficient movement <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we get that we understand because yeah. there, there's days where it's like yeah today's run i'm just gonna go for a jog it's kind of like a you know just a easy effort no real i don't know exactly what i'm trying to say about it but it's not that important and yet i should still do my pre-run routine hmm. right yes <laughs> the other piece of it or another potential stumbling block for somebody might be that they're still learning it and so it just takes a lot of effort to do a new routine because you got to look it up and you have to pay more attention it does take brain work hence the name neuromuscular uh, yeah so still learning can be a stumbling block for some people before it becomes a habit and remember our conversation a couple of weeks ago about struggle and the level of mental effort that's involved in doing things. And so something like this, when it's new, is a much higher level of mental effort. So let's assume that your life is normal, which means you have a lot going on and you're stressed from many different things. You have emotional and mental pressures from multiple domains. So if that's true for you, which it is probably because you're human listening to us talk right now, um, if that is indeed the case, then it means that adding another potential mental stress to the equation for you right now may be too much. It might tip the balance for you a bit. And so part of the question is, is there a better and worse time to do something like this? And of course, the answer happens to be yes. There are times that are better. We're going to get into that in the how episode next week. But it does mean that if you're feeling like I this uh, this is too much, it's putting me over the edge, and it may be a question for another time, certainly. So why do it now versus why do it another time? And that's the last stumbling block is time. It takes time. Yeah. These are not the kinds of things that you can rush through either. And that's going to be something, again, as we talk about the how. But with with this kind of stuff, because we're talking not just about uh, an, an exercise in physiological improvement. We're talking about an exercise in mind muscle connection there's even more importance in certain things involved in that 
So the time can be a challenge. Mm. So when we answer the question, why do this stuff at all? Let's consider a few things here. We mentioned that these are the illusions we are making. Um, certainly better control is safer, which means better health. Um, so you're, you're going to be a healthier runner if you address these things and you address them effectively and regularly. So that's, that's a straightforward, most important advantage here. Doesn't matter if you care about performance. Doesn't matter if you're taking the running thing seriously. If you're doing enough of it and, and so in such a way that there's any risk of injury, this kind of stuff is worth the time because it will reduce that. And then, of course, the other side is it also makes, you know, efficiency makes us be able to run faster, which makes us run better. Which and is are fun. Good. It is. It's great. That tends to be the thing. I, I, the number one thing that people tell us they want out of running is performance improvement. And it's true that many of us just do it for fun and don't care about the results. That is true. But most are trying to achieve some kind of performance improvement at some point. So this is going to help you with that. Uh, but there, again, as I said, there's more to it. So I want to talk about we've got two basically kind of uh, two general examples, some studies here. Um, as well as uh, some more reference to DeSherry's case that he makes. But one of the things we've done, as we, as we do research for these kinds of topics, we tend to look for two different types of research. One is specific studies, and you can kind of really drill down on the precise parameters and methods that they use. Uh, but then also we like to look at reviews of research, because then you get a kind of broader meta-analysis of what's going on across many studies. Both of them have value. Neither of them are the complete picture by themselves. So I, I spent a fair bit of time trying to find a good research review on the topic. And I was running into a couple of problems, which I find fascinating. And I wanted to share them with you here. Um, many, by the way, many studies in general, but certainly the research reviews, when they look at a more broad collection of these data, will suggest that you can't link specific technique factors with improvement in running economy. Like there's, there's not enough consistency. And that is in fact the case. If you start looking across many studies, it's like some of them say when you improve this element of technique, it shows running economy in this thing and then others it's not. And then some it's like within a same study, we had 10 people and four of them saw this, four saw this, two saw this, and it was all different. So you get a lot of that when you start looking at running motion, which is why so many of the big claims around things like running technique revolve around this idea that you shouldn't mess with it, that you should just let it be natural because they seem to think that because these studies are so inconsistent, that it means that we should all just run the way that's comfortable for us. However, I found another element that was quite consistent among these studies that I think is revelatory here. Um, and this is simply because what they're doing, what they're studying is they're saying, let's take a group of runners. Most of the time, it's a fairly sizable uh, selection of runners. They don't usually do this with like five or 10. It's too small of a sample size. So they'll do this with like 100 runners or more. And they'll say, we're, we're going to ask these runners to change some element of the running technique. You know where I'm going with this yet, Andy? No. And uh, you'll figure it out here soon. And so they'll say, okay, for you, for, for you runners, 
uh, for 13 weeks, we'll have U20 runners try to improve your running cadence. Just run faster. U20 runners, we want you to change your pelvic tilt um, or something about your torso, uh, something about your foot strike, uh, all of that kind of stuff, right? I got it. Now Andy knows where I'm going. So in almost every instance where you can find a specific study where they've addressed running technique or running mechanics specifically, it revolves around that concept. However, as all of those studies have proven and the more obvious claim that Jay DeSherry resolutely makes in his book is that we already know that telling a runner to improve their running stuff by changing something about their technique is a bad way to change their technique. It's ineffective at face value. So the study is going to say, as a result, we find no consistent proof that running technique changes running economy, that improving running technique improves running economy. Well, of course not, because you're not doing the running technique thing in the right way. That's like it's like a PT saying, you know what, you need to use your hamstring more. Yeah. And, and that's like... So the, while you're running, use say, your hamstring more. Instead of like... Well, no. So what he's going to do is he's going to give you an exercise that's yes. going to help you use your hamstring more. He's not going to just say, or he, he or she, like, is not going to say... Just fire it more. Right. <laughs> right. Although, in theory, you could potentially do that. If your proprioception were high enough and you were able to exert that much precise control over your muscles, you could technically fire your hamstring more. But almost no one does that well, and there's a reason for that. And it's still not the best way to go about it, even if you could theoretically do it. So DeSherry shares the example, um, and I, I am personally aware of this one because I knew some people who participated in it, but he shared the example of this study that an elite team did once, uh, not terribly long ago. It was about a decade ago. And what they did is they wanted to study ground contact time and its effects on efficiency and performance. And so they had these professional runners, these this elite team of runners, uh, male and female, they had them test ground contact time improvement. So just basically like the instruction was, be on the ground for less time, like get your feet off the ground faster. And the results of the study were that everyone was injured because they didn't actually teach their bodies how to move better. They just had the runners try to do it while they were running. And that's the, that's the, that's the case in point of the problem here with so many running studies is that you're telling a runner to fix something about their running motion. And it may in fact be an improvement that you're asking them to do. But if you ask them to do it without the proper methods and means of achieving that result, chances are it's not going to work. And if it does work, it's incidental. And in most cases, even if it works, it also results in other things like injuries and such. I mean, it's called the kinetic chain for a reason because there's all these things connected. So if you were to try to study something that has to do with many parts of the body, it's just very difficult because there's many variables. I mean, it makes sense that it's hard. It's hard to zero in, to dial in something for a research. So that said, the study that I do want to share here to underscore our comments about how these things are good is one that instead of trying to change what the runners were doing, this study was specifically examining 
the various motion mechanics of runners and any kind of associations between those motion mechanics and the runner's efficiency. So we're going to measure your running economy. They had some specific ways of doing that. They had them hooked up to all the stuff. Their breathing, their VO2, their blood lactate level. They had them hooked up to all the stuff. And so we're going to measure efficiency and economy in a number of those uh, biological ways. And then within that, they were taking all sorts of measurements around their running movements and mechanics. And what they found, this was in 2017, uh, they found with the 100 runners that they were studying that, and it was, it was about 50-50 male and female, um, pretty consistently certain kinds of motion mechanics were always closely aligned with better running economy. And so that included some of the predictable things like um, they, they used they used it in terms of the angle of your knee upon ground contact, which essentially underscores the point of whether you hit the ground in front of your body, behind your body, beneath your body, all that kind of stuff. And naturally, there was kind of an optimal range, and it was within a certain small window of tolerance. And so if you contact the ground within a certain range uh, under your body, that, that seems to be more efficient. Uh, and there were a few others. And so they, they basically came back to it and said, if your technique is X, then Y is likely to result, more likely to result. Um, so that, that kind of gives, gives us the fuel for some of those other studies, which then say, okay, let's just force these runners to improve these things. But then, of course, as we mentioned, DeSherry argues that if you want to improve those things, there are some better running mechanics. It's, it's not anything you do is the best thing for you. There are some optimal. DeSherry calls it plan A and plan B. There is a plan A. Um, most of us are operating within plan B incidentally because that's just the way our body has learned to cope with the way we are doing things. Um, and so his argument is we need to take whatever the current plan B is, find out why plan A isn't happening. So that's the diagnostic part first. And then address the kinds of things that remove the block, which would be, you know, if you have a particular issue that's inhibiting your motion in some way, first you remove that block, then you rewire the pattern, which is why his book is called Running Rewired. And then upon rewiring the pattern, you establish plan A over time. And what that amounts to then is you're essentially saying the brain is plastic. We know that, that it can change. Um, but what it is, is it really likes routine, pathways, familiar pathways. Our brain really likes to follow familiar pathways, which is why you can get those kinds of situations where um, you, if you think a thing about a thing, that's what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. And then it could be something totally different, but you aren't going to see the difference because that's what you were already thinking about it. And so that's like the self-fulfilled prophecy concept uh, in a more precise example. But the best example of that is like the the um, the test they do about, you know, you write a sentence on the board with a bunch of people and you say, this sentence has three errors. And so the first thing you notice is that um, the word three has three E's instead of two, three errors. And then the second one is that the word errors has one fewer R's than it needs. And then that's it. And you're like, oh, what's the other problem? I can't find it anywhere. And people rack their brains over this. I can't find the third error. Do you know what it is, Andy? I haven't heard this before. Yeah. Well, here's the third error. That the sentence only has two errors. 
which means the third error is that it's an incorrect statement. Oh. <laughs> but no one figures that out initially because my brain is wired to look at these words and letters and find the thing and I'm not seeing anything else. So then what they do is they say, take a step back, like a 10 minute break or something, do other things and then come back to it and think about it conceptually again. And most people can find the third error when they come back to it. So that neural, that neural routine, the familiar pathway is what we like to follow, which means our body will always try to move the way that's familiar, not the way that it ought in all circumstances. And in order to address this, then we have to break that routine, the familiar routine, and then we have to create a new one. And that's the hard part. That's the part when we talk about the how next week that we're really going to dive into mm -hmm. further. So the last thing that I want to mention, uh, just to, to kind of come back to Desherry's work one more time here and give some more specifics, um, he he will talk about on numerous occasions, and I'm not talking just about in his book, but just in in conversations with people who have interacted with him as well as some of his other material. Um, he's constantly reinforcing the point of he'll take an athlete who has had this chronic problem for like years sometimes, and he'll work with them for three weeks and the problem's gone. How is that possible? We say, how is that possible? Now he doesn't promise that by the way, that that's going to happen in every instance, but how is that possible? Well, what he'll say is because all you had to do was just start moving correctly. Some way about how you were moving was causing that problem, that pain in the knee, that constant tightness in the hip, whatever it was. And by moving correctly, that's gone. So, that's an, that's that's kind of the underscoring premise of we should all be trying to move correctly because there's a high percent chance that we have some kind of thing that plagues us that shouldn't be and wouldn't be if we were doing this better. So there's that. And I think, well, I, I guess the final note then that I wanted to say about his stuff was, um, I mentioned we're going to talk about the, the difference between doing things improperly versus doing things and doing things poorly um, and how that produces not only no results, but often the opposite of good results. Um, one of the things that DeSherry will, will often underscore, and we're going to come back to this as well next week, is that these things are not always the same suggestions for everyone. So this is this goes back to the point that people will make like, you should just do whatever's natural for you. Well, that's not true. There is optimal running motion, mechanical motion, um, and we should all aspire toward that. But at the same token, we are also not all exactly the same structurally and physiologically. And so you have to take into account something like um, the rotation of your hips and your shins are the two that he DeSherry specifically looks at hips and shins uh, when he looks at like structural synchronicity. And so if, if your hips are not rotated, totally neutral and straight, for instance, me, my right hip is rotated slightly differently than my left. So now in that instance, if I were to force my right leg into the exact same motion, uh, as my left leg, it actually causes quite a bit of discomfort that worsens over time in one of my knees. And so there has to be some amount of tolerance for the fact that my right leg is going to be slightly tilted versus my left. Um, and that's going to be the case. So if that's true, then we have to also understand that 
for my particular situation, I need to be able to understand where I am currently in those types of things and then what I should do as a result of that. So in summary, <laughs> um, improved neuromuscular development is going to give us a better running experience. So that's why. That's why we should do it. Um, do it properly. Address the right issues in the right way. And we can see the benefits. But, and this is the practical takeaway for today before we get into the how next week. But don't just go out and say, someone said that running 180 steps per minute is the optimal cadence. So I'm going to put my metronome on and make sure that I run 180 steps per minute every time I run. That's not the kind of solution that we're looking for here. Mm-hmm. So there's your little your little tidbit, kind of a teaser, I guess. Yeah. My teaser also could be perhaps <laughs> for next week. Try standing on one foot and then the other. See what where your balance is at. Maybe try to spread your toes apart. Maybe try to grab something off the ground with your toes. And he's doing some proprioception exercises for you. And then see where you're at. Because I think some of us don't really realize that there's the opportunity to grow in this area. Can you hold a pencil with your foot and write your own name legibly? Not me. <laughs> huh. I don't think. I guess I, I could try it. I don't know if that means anything one way or the other, but it would be fun to watch everyone try to do that. Better yet, take a video of yourself no. trying to write your name with your foot and then post that somewhere. I mean, we're not going to see it because I, I don't even know what social media people use, but that would be a funny thing to start a trend over, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Isn't that what trends are? Like when people do funny things and someone else tries it too? Make it a challenge. That's a thing. People make <laughs> challenges about everything. All right. Well, I'll think about it. I'll okay. think about it, Zach. Andy's going to start a trending, a challenge trend. <laughs> cool. Well, that was riveting. We're going to talk about it more next week. So let's get on to the world running. First note in the world of running is just a quick previous week update that we missed. My fault. Um, our man CJ ran the Crim 10 mile as well as the Michigan mile. He ran two races in one weekend. How could we have guessed? And he won the Michigan mile. He did that. By the way. Oh, yes. That was the other update. So <laughs> I said he was second. There was some confusion in the results reporting because someone uh, was listed in the results who didn't finish at that spot. It was some kind of chip timing error, I think. But anyway, so CJ, congrats on the victory in the Michigan mile and coming back the next day to run a 10-mile PR as well. That's some good racing over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots of good racing over the weekend this past week. Not just weekend, I guess, because we had a few Diamond League races. It just is one of those things that, you know, well, I I figured this out, Andy, because um, when we were first looking up the results, we were kind of like, oh, look, they had two Diamond Leagues in a weekend, which they have done occasionally over the years, but it's not a super common thing. Well, I figured out why. It's because they canceled other ones earlier this summer and they rescheduled one of them which is why there were now two this weekend. Very interesting. And it's in a different location than it was originally scheduled to be, which is also interesting. So what do we got first? Let's start in Zurich with the men's 1,500-meter run. This was very fun for Yard Nagoose fans. (laughs) Yard. 
So Yared Yared has done everything right this season except for the World Champs final. And he didn't do badly. I should right. say. I mean, no. finishing fifth in his first World Champs final is good. It's not bad. But the fact that he does things like this makes you think, <laughs> where were you in that final? <laughs> so what is it that Yared did, Andy? He beat the world champion, Josh Kerr, on the line of the 1,500-meter run. On the line. On the line. Yeah. Outleaned him. Yes, he did for a time of 330.49. All right. Exciting time in yep. league victory. In the exciting. women's 800-meter run, briefly, Laura Muir beat all the 800-meter specialists, which I thought was very interesting. She's not too shabby herself at the 800. She's not. I, if you're going to be world-class 1,500-meter runner, of course, you're going to be good at the 800-meter run. But it was a very speedy time of 157. I thought it was impressive. Mm-hmm. Men's 5,000 meter run. This was interesting. It was a very solid field, as the 5,000 typically seems to be. It <laughs> has and, been this year. Yeah. And yet, despite it being another impressive field, it kind of had the flavor of people were not super sharp, which maybe coming off of world championships or something. Had it makes something sense because a lot of them were running the 5,000, the 10,000. <laughs> Multiple races at World Championships. And you have to do a preliminary round in the 5,000 at World Champs, which just sounds so tough. That's a lot of racing. It is. A lot of hard racing. So Yamath Kajelcha of Ethiopia was the man of the hour this time, and it's not as he's he's no stranger to that fact in the Diamond League this year, Um, running yet another 1240-something and change. How many people can say they've done that multiple times in a single season? Mm-hmm. So 12.46 for Yamath Kajelcha with a massive victory. It was almost eight seconds over countryman Salomon Borrega. So you can just get the get the sense here of Kajelcha winning by almost eight seconds would be something that would happen if it weren't a world-class field. The fact that it was saying something about what he just did. Yeah, and I loved the third-place story because it was a hunt for Grant Fisher. Grant a Fisher, hunt. USA. Yes. Now, he did not make the U.S. team for the World Championships, even though he is the national record holder of yep. the USA. He's been struggling with some injury. All that to say, this was a really spectacular race, the way that he ran it. And not only just in his fitness to be able to run in these leagues, but also the way that he did, the way he executed this run, it was hard. Like he had to gain connection again. It was a struggle. A lot of late race work. A lot of late race work, and he had fallen off, and then there was some carnage because <laughs> there was. Yeah, that's, because, that's the right phrase. Yeah. Because the the leader started to hammer, and then some guys were falling off, and Grant had kept in it enough, even though he had fallen fallen off the pack, he started to you know pick people off, them off. Yep. and ended up with a third place finish, twelve fifty four. I mean, that's a solid time returning after injury for sure. A season best, and and um, if I'm not mistaken, his second or third fastest five thousand. Um, okay. Of his life, so that that looks good for Grant Fisher. I'm I'm pleased for him with that kind of result mm-hmm. at this moment in time. Yeah, uh, especially noting that he outkicked world champs fourth place finisher Louis Grialva 
who then finished fourth again in his meet. Again. And people have been saying, this guy, he just finishes fourth a lot. Just another fourth That's place for him. That's a tough spot to and be. Really, he's been looking so good. He has I bet been. he was really hoping for a podium I'm sure he here. was a little bit tired off the world championships. Sure. He was one of those that ran the multiple rounds of the 5,000. He put everything he had into that 5,000 final. And just he just couldn't kick with the kicks that the other guys were doing, but he was close. So as it goes, you you get a a good taste of how things were looking in this moment when there were 16 guys in the field. At least one or two of those were pacers, but um, seven did not finish the race. Yeah. So that's I mean they were they were tired. Only nine they were people spent. finished. It was a tough day. Yeah. Nine nine men finished. In a, a, a Diamond League world-class field. So, mm -hmm. tough moment for sure. Then we go to China. Ti China. In Jiamen, which is then the place that was rescheduled I mentioned earlier. Shenzhen, I believe, was where the meet was supposed to be held. And this is now then a, a debut for Jiamen, if I'm saying that correctly, where they intend to hold more things. Apparently, the stadium was built to be a track and soccer stadium football for you non-usa people um and so it's it's they're like you know we want to host athletics a lot here so this was kind of their dry run their okay. trial run and uh had some world-class things going on yeah for sure this was no surprise well i guess it could be a surprise for some people well it wasn't it was, i guess it was they've a gone upset. back and forth all yeah. seasons <laughs> it was emmanuel, emmanuel wanyanyi of kenya who then won the race in a lean at the line over world champ Marco Arap of Canada. But those were the ones you were kind of looking at. And they've been, yes. like Saka said, they've been going back and forth. And it was very tight because it looked like Arap was, like, passing Winyani. Yeah, it looked like it. But then Winyani, like, had a little something more. It Just was a cool. moment. They were going back yeah. and forth. They're going back and forth right there at the finish. And I don't think they knew who won initially mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, because it was so close. And two, because the scoreboard originally showed Arop as the faster time. And he like pointed. And then it changed again. Uh -huh. Yeah. He was pointing up at something. Whatever the case may be, when Yanyi ran a new world leading time, 143.2, but Arop ran a new personal best as well. So not bad all around. Fast Even race. if you don't win the race, Very you, win it, race. you run a PR is good. He's sharp right now. Yes. And just flying by the 3,000-meter steeplechase because it was no surprise. Sufain Abikali was the winner. Won again. again. <laughs> so if you don't count um, things like uh, preliminary heats in world championships, which we don't because no one officially counts that in the scoreboard of who won and lost, um, Abikali remains undefeated for now the last four years. Is it four? I believe it's the last I didn't four years that long. now. Um, it's about 12 races, 12 steeplechase races. And uh, that's just, I, I'd love to know if anyone has ever done that. At this Some, point, it's impressive. he is doing the thing. Every time he wins, he's doing the thing. But he does not have no the world does. record. But he still doesn't have the world record. And may never, but, you know, that's. He's been close. He's got a lot of other good accolades. Next race was the women's 3,000-meter run, not the steeple. We got that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This was a fun race because there was a really awesome push in the last 800 meters by Mexico's Laura Galvin. 
and bold. I love to see it. it was it was very bold and with the season she's had I'm not surprised that she wanted to take some chances and put the race into her hands and although she didn't end up winning she did come out second place and it was a new national record for Galvin yeah. very exciting she was outrun by Beatrice Jabet <laughs> but you know well, Chibet's kick is almost unrivaled. Remember, she nearly outkicked Sifan Hassan and Faith Kipyegon in the 5,000-meter final. And so for Beatrice Chibet, there aren't many out there who are going to mm -hmm. contend with her in the last lap. Galvin, though, was the one who turned up the heat with 800 to go, which, again, bold, but also, you know, to, to basically say, all right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good groove here, and I want to see what I can do. Now's the time to do it. Don't wait around for like someone else's race to come to you. Just make it your own race. Right. That's good. Especially if she, I mean, I'm sure she had the national record in her sights. So. Well, I imagine at that point you got to know. Right. But. So she was racing against the clock more than other people. Most right. Likely. And still finished second. So good on her. We're not done yet because no. in Berlin. Well, that's, that's it for the Diamond League races. Okay. Uh, these next meets weren't Diamond League, but it just so happens to be that people are still doing other stuff other places as well. And so, yes, in Berlin. In Berlin, Natezabek Gade attempted Faith Kipiegan's newly minted 5,000-meter record. Trying to retake that record. Yeah, of course she's going to do that. Of course. It was a solo effort, which makes it hard, I'm sure. Yes, but at the same time, that's the way Gide's run most of her best races. So while people will say, eh, solo run, that's that's tough, she does run well by herself. She's a strong runner. I think she's got a mind of steel. Except <laughs> okay. for Faith Gipiegan has gotten in there. Well, a did bit, she get it, Andy? Did she, she do it? She missed it. She uh, missed it by three seconds. But so still, fourth. 14.08. 14.08 for the fourth fastest all time. And okay. she has three of the top five times ever run. Yeah, Gide is the most, she has the most sub 14 10 times of anyone which is not saying that much because like almost no one has run sub 14 10 right well it's only saying a, a lot it's saying uh, extra amounts yes like, so wow. if, if faith kibiegan has run 1405 once gide has run nearly 1405 three times so it's yes she has definitely proven herself in the event it's a question of can she nab that record back at some point here soon and she may be trying again yet this season so we'll see in Bellinzona, there was another 800-meter PR for Addie Wiley, USA's mm. young star, running a time of 157.64, which is so fast because we were just talking about how that was the time that Laura Muir ran to win the Diamond League. Yeah. And we were super stoked and impressed with that. And then our very own Addie Wiley of the USA running that same time. And this is just baffling to a lot of people. Like, where is Addie Wiley coming from and how is she doing these things? And it's just, you know, it's one of those that who knows what her future career is. You can't ever make predictions about these things. Um, but there's a very good chance that she has a good future in the sport. <laughs> and so it's exciting to see this kind of stuff now. She's, as of yet, hasn't really been able to um, show up on the world stage in many ways. This was kind of like a nice introduction to some of the international races she hasn't done a lot of um and she finished second to yeah. jamaica's star natoya gould toppin and so if you can you know run outrun everyone but her in a strong international field that's a good sign yeah really exciting stuff 
So coming back to the USA and the roads a moment mm-hmm. and then jumping off the track because who wants to talk about just a track all I the mean, time? I mean, I could, but it's even more exciting to have a variety, which we're going to get to even more variety yes. here in a moment. But let's get to the roads. This is the 20, 20K Championships. You've heard us talk about the U.S. road racing circuit. So this is another stop on that journey, on that circuit. And it was, on the women's side, a very dominant victory by Emily Sisson. Okay. No surprise there. She is the American record holder in the marathon. She won in a time of 66.09. Which doesn't mean a lot to those of us listening because 20K is, you know, like 1K plus a little short of a half marathon. So... The best way to think about it is it's maybe like three to four minutes sh- shorter than a half marathon. So she said she was happy with it and the way that her training is going for her fall good. marathon, right. which if she's saying that, that's also a, a, an exciting thing because she's obviously our nation's fastest marathoner to this point. Yeah. Good stuff. Sisson has now eight national titles. Track and roads or just roads? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that it. I mean, I, I think it's just all together national titles. But I guess I, okay, could, well. I, I could fact check that and see if that includes her. And second place was Edna Kurgat mm-hmm. as well, about half a minute behind. And Kurgat actually hung with Sisson until the last eight hundred meters. So that that time that Sisson put thirty Sisson, seconds on her in the last eight hundred. That's that's Oof. what I was reading. So that's brutal. Yeah. Clayton Young, previous podcast guest, won for the men in a time of 59-15. All right. In a exciting battle with Connor Mance. Teammate. Teammate. As it were. Well, training partners. I guess they're not technically on the same team, but training partners. I think yeah. they call them. I, I think that they I mean, it makes sense. Like they're both training under the BYU coach umbrella that group that trains together um and they're all they all run for different brands different but they're yeah they're basically teammates Mm -hmm. that's clayton young's third u.s title on the roads second one this year I believe. second this year so you recall we had him on the podcast was it shortly before shortly after his first shortly after shortly after after his first title and uh, he had a little bit of a dearth between that and his second. It took a bit for him to uh, win the next one, but he, now he's kind of on a roll. Mm-hmm. Despite Good the timing. fact that he seemed to want to claim that his teammate, Connor Mance, let him win the race. But Connor said no way. <laughs> Mance denied it. He's well, like, I he was also... trying to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then third was Sam Chalenga, also previous podcast guest, in a time of 59.26, making that podium. There's a lot of big names like, you know, Futsum, Zana Selassie, Baya Sambasa, lots of fast runners in this event. Of course, there is points to be had in each of these U.S. championships on the road. So I'm sure that's why they're showing up. And it's also good timing for fall marathons. It is that. Yeah, a lot of people are a lot of people are gearing up for the next big one. But um, we got we got to update you all on the standings here soon because the it's things are wrapping up soon in the uh, circuit. But the standings are always interesting. You know, Clayton Young's got two victories, which is a substantial amount of points, and yet. Has he run enough races to mm. be one of the top few in the standings? Is always one of those questions. The likes of Sam Chalanga, who just runs all of them. He might not win them, but he's very close, mm. and he's getting up. He's racking up lots of points. Well, there's no question about the queenship 
<laughs> I'm trying to figure out where you're going with this transition. Of Courtney DeWalter. Yeah, that's true. Because we're questioning now, is is she Superwoman? Is she that's what you're questioning. sort of superhero? I think she's just a robot. I think she has replaced I, most of her biological components. The most robot I ever did see. The most well, happy, joyful. Her face is still human. <laughs> so DeWalter is still rolling with her wins. She is now... The reigning champ of the UTMB Championships, which is Ultra Trail du, du Mont Blanc. And this is a brutal race. 106.5 miles with 32,800 feet of climbing in the Alps. In the Alps. So these are one of, this is one of those races that um, people who are not well adapted to high elevation running uh, struggle with one of these types of races. A lot of times... In fact, a lot of times U.S. ultra marathoners do not travel to some of these Europe ultras that are the mountain races for that reason. But we, I mean, we got our fair share of we mountains in the U.S. too. But up for this one, but I'll start with Courtney. Yeah. First. Okay. Okay. So why am I saying she's Superwoman? Well, seven weeks removed from this event, she set the course record at the Hard Rock 100. Ten weeks prior to this. She got the course record at Western States 100, which is unheard of to do, do even the two of those. And then to like get the this third one. Yeah. This was her big challenge. This was her big goal. So to get another huge win like this is incredible. Win by 40 minutes. Yes, yeah, she won by 40 minutes. That's substantial. Notable. It is notable. <laughs> so as it were... What was even more exciting uh, for Courtney DeWalter and her country people at the event was that Jim Walmsley won for the men, marking the first ever instance of an American winning this race, which is really saying something. American man, because, yeah. Y yes, that, <laughs> that's what I mean. So as, as he did, um, also in a course record time, he just showed up big. That's very impressive. Mm -hmm. Very difficult. I don't know why people do things like this at all, but <laughs> I guess... We have athletes that do, so why are you saying it like that? I still don't know. It's, <laughs> it if you're going to do it, go big, I guess is the answer. Yeah. And this one in particular, the UTMB, is iconic. It's beautiful. It's revered. So very, very cool event and very exciting results from USA. Those are all the exciting results we have to share this week. Uh, but as you know, we'll be doing more of that here in the near future. And you got to stick around for the next episode because we haven't fully answered the question about what to do about this neuromuscular training. And we're going to do that next time when we address how and when to go about doing those types of things. And then, as you will, you're going to have questions. Questions not just about running and training, but perhaps about the podcast episode specifically itself. You can ask those questions because we will answer them on air and be able to take the ideas and content we're sharing to your specific situation more pointedly. So go to adazyrunning.com slash question to do just that. Or if you're on Spotify, find the interact section and you can comment and question there also. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you next week.